And please turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 14. This morning we are picking up here to consider verses 19 through 23. And again, we've just sung of how the pilgrims of God in this world advance from strength to strength, and the tie there in Psalm 84 has to do with the church, with the house of God. And we're going to hear more about that in our text this morning. Boys and girls, our text begins with the Apostle Paul being stoned and left for dead. And I want you to just notice as I read, what, what does he do afterwards? What does he prioritize after experiencing such a great trial? And really what we're going to do this morning is see how the Lord Jesus Christ himself strengthens the church um, even as he, uh, pro- uh, as he presides over all of these events from his place at the right hand of the Father. Let's give our careful attention to the word of God. Acts chapter 14 beginning at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Amen. This is the word of God. In each of the synoptic gospels, the writers record for us Jesus' parable of the sower. And in that parable, a sower goes out and he sows his seed. Some seed falls on uh, different kinds of soils and because of that produces different fruits. Some falls along the path and it is immediately plucked up. Some falls among a rocky soil and it sprouts, but because it has no depth, when the sun comes out, it is scorched and withers away. Some falls among thorns, and it grows for some time, but after time it is choked because of those thorns. And then finally some falls upon good soil, and that seed sprouts and bears an abundant harvest. Well, that is what we have been reading about here in the book of Acts. That is what we have been witnessing, as it were, as we've been walking our way through the book of Acts. When Jesus explained the parable of the sower, he told his disciples that he is the sower. He is the one who goes about sowing the seed of his word. And we have been reading about how that has occurred through his church in the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins by presenting us with the risen and exalted Christ, who now brings the good news of the gospel to this world through his people. And so we have seen how Jesus is the sower going about this world with his word. At the same time, we have witnessed about the ways in which that word works differently in the world. Just as Jesus said, we have witnessed that that seed has fallen among different soils. We might think of Elymas the magician. He would be a good example of that rocky soil. 
Uh, he would be that hard path that the birds come and immediately pluck that seed away. Uh, perhaps the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia were like the rocky soil that sprouted immediately. Remember, the first time they heard Paul preached, they begged that he might return the next week and bring them the gospel again. But the very next week, because of the crowds, their hearts were filled with jealousy, and they became Paul's enemy. They reviled him, and they stirred up the crowds against him. We haven't yet seen anything here where we might say that looks like the cares of the world have gotten a hold of that heart. But later, the Apostle Paul is going to write in 2 Timothy 4 about Demas. And Demas was uh, one who went with Paul. He is one who is often sending his greetings to the churches in Paul's letters. But later, he deserts Paul, as Paul writes, because he was in love with this world. We have also witnessed the word falling among good soil and producing much fruit. In every city where Paul has preached the word of God, it has found certain hearts where it has been very, very fruitful, where sinners were saved and disciples were made. And because of this, churches were planted in each of those cities as God's word was powerful to produce much fruit. And so we might visualize the early church at this point in the book of Acts as a freshly planted garden, as a garden that has just begun to sprout. To use the metaphor that the Lord Jesus has given us, how does he then care for his garden? How does he care for these seedlings that have just sprouted? What about these disciples who can be compared to a tender garden that are in one of, one of its most vulnerable states? How does Jesus strengthen the church? What does Jesus do to care for his church in this world? Well, that is what we read about here in our text. The text begins by telling us of how these Jews came. They followed Paul. They didn't just leave him alone after driving him out of their town. No, they followed Paul. They found Paul and they stoned him. They thought he was dead and they left him. And then when Paul revived, he was surrounded by the disciples. He went into town. He preached the gospel. They went into Derby. They preached the gospel there. And then they made their return voyage. They made their return trip, stopping along the way at each of these new churches. Why? In order to strengthen them. When you plant a garden, your work is not done. No, you have to return to it. You have to tend to it. You have to care for it. You have to strengthen it. And with Paul and Barnabas's return journey, we see how Jesus Christ cares for his church. When Jesus plants a church, how does he care for it? How does he tend to it, that, to that good work that he has begun so that it might continue to bear much fruit? Well, our text shows us that he does so in three ways. First of all, he does so by way of encouragement. By encouragement. Again, our text begins with that intense opposition. The Jews have come from Antioch and Iconium. Because they were so opposed to the gospel message that they pursued Paul to another town, they left him, they stoned him, they left him for dead. But when he revived, Paul returned to his work. He preached the gospel, and now he comes to strengthen the church. Just as when one plants a garden and tends to it, here is how Jesus Christ himself tends to these brand new believers. How so? 
Well, here he does so in two ways. This encouragement comes through two means. The Lord Jesus strengthens his church through the presence of the apostle and through the preaching of his word or the ministry of his word. Notice here that Paul and Barnabas go to the extra effort and they are willing to endure additional dangers to go and to be personally with these brand new believers. In each place where they have preached, there were some who were so strongly opposed to the gospel message that Paul and Barnabas faced a real threat. And yet, such is the Lord Jesus' care for his church that he has Paul and Barnabas set aside their own self-interest in order to go and face these dangers to encourage the saints with their personal presence. There are obviously times for letter writing or we wouldn't have Paul's epistles. There are times where you can use another means to give instruction and encouragement, but there is also no simple substitute for personal presence when it comes to encouragement. This is one of the reasons why the Lord has ordered our lives to come together each week for worship. Imitating their Savior, Paul and Barnabas go to great lengths in order to enter into the lives of these new believers, making it their aim to strengthen them. So they strengthen first with their personal presence, but they also encourage them with the ministry of the word. Look at that word, encouraging. This is the first time that, it is, that that word is used here in the book of Acts. It's used four more times. And each time it is used to describe exhortation with the word of God, with the realities of the faith. Here in our text, the apostle Paul brings the unchanging truth of God's word to bear upon the present situation of these saints. Why? Well, because as we've already heard this morning, the word of God is living and active. We heard that in the book of Hebrews. But also as we sang in Psalm 119, it is the word of God that he uses to strengthen our souls. Listen to Psalm 119. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes. My soul melts away for sorrow strengthen me according to your word. In those statements, each time there's a statement of weakness on behalf of the believer, anticipating strength from the word of God. Well, that's what Paul and Barnabas are doing here. They return to strengthen these brand new believers, and they use both their personal presence and the ministry of the word to strengthen their souls. So what was the message that they brought for their encouragement? What was the message uh, contained in Paul's exhortation? Well, it says that he encouraged them to continue in the faith. And that language sets before us two aspects of the faith. That language sets before us both the objective reality of the faith or the objective aspects of the faith, but also the personal need for faith. First of all, it sets before us the fact that there is only one faith. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
Here Paul is encouraging the saints with the fact that there is only one faith. While there might be many imitations, while there might be others who are going to tell you that there must be another way, the Lord Jesus himself says there is one. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The Apostle Paul will later write a letter to this whole region, and he's going to warn them about these others who are going to come alongside and try to turn these, these believers out of the way. In Galatians, he'll write, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Here Paul and Barnabas encourage them to continue in the faith. There is only one faith. And so Paul prepares these believers. He strengthens them so that they will be single-minded in the faith of Jesus Christ. Paul strengthens these believers by reminding them of that objective reality, the objective realities of the gospel, but then also with the personal nature of the faith. While there is only one faith, one must have faith. One must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And to continue in the faith means to continue in that faith by which you first received the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul's words to the Colossians. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Just as you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk in him. The way in which you are strengthened in the Christian life is to continue to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The way that you will be rooted and built up and established in Christ is by continuing to believe upon him. Finally, Paul sets side by side two realities of the Christian life. So that the one will strengthen us for the other. He begins with the reality of tribulation. And he goes to these young believers and he says, listen, you need to understand the nature of the Christian life. It will be filled with many tribulations. That word could be translated as pressures or pressings. You are going to be pressed in by many, many things. Paul gives a list of his own pressings or his own tribulations in 2 Corinthians 11. And it's a list that none, none of us will ever come close to experiencing. He wants these brand new believers to understand the nature of the Christian life so that they are not caught unaware. So that they don't think that something is wrong when they face these tribulations. And these words here refute any sort of health and wealth gospel or any sort of prosperity preaching or even the light version that simply says, hey, listen, if you follow God's plan for your life, you're not going to face these tribulations. That is not the case. In fact, it is quite the opposite. When you are on the narrow path, it's the same Greek word. You're going to face tribulations. You're going to face these pressures and 
All of the different pressings that come with the life of following Jesus Christ. So what does God give to counterbalance that reality? Well, he sets side by side the other reality, the other reality that is given to us in order to strengthen us to persevere through all of these tribulations. What is that reality? Well, Paul says it is the reality of heaven. It is through many tribulations that we enter what? The kingdom of God. And that is where every pilgrim must set their hope and their attention. That is a reality that we must carry with us day in and day out to strengthen us and to encourage us to continue in the faith. In Romans 8, Paul says that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. He writes similarly in 2 Corinthians 4 that the afflictions of this world are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In those two texts and in this one before us this morning, in all three of them, it is our future hope that is provided to strengthen us and to propel us through all of these many tribulations. The Apostle Paul is essentially saying, listen, if you could only see what awaits you in glory, the great afflictions that you face in this life, you would say they are light and momentary. He is not discounting the difficulties that we all face in this life. We considered this a few weeks ago, right? There are many different different difficulties in the Christian life. He's not saying they're not hard. He's not saying they're not difficult. But what he is saying is that it is your hope of heaven that will pull you, as it were, through that narrow path, that pressed path. It is knowing that one day you will stand before God in a glorified body, in a glorified soul, and you will never, ever be tempted again. You will be unable to sin. You won't know God by faith because you will know God by sight. And you will be unable to cry anything other than tears of joy. That reality is what Paul sets before brand new believers to say, don't ever forget it. This is the reality that strengthens us for the Christian journey. Paul caught a glimpse of that glory. And when he did, he couldn't even put it into words. Well, brothers and sisters, that is the first part of what Christ provides to strengthen his church. These are the good gifts given to us by Jesus to strengthen us for the pilgrim journey. And these are what, these are the gifts that Christ continues to provide through his church. Personal presence. This is why we gather together each and every week on the Lord's Day. This is why we prioritize it, so that we might encourage and be encouraged. And this is why we come to hear the word, to read the word, to sing the word, because it is the word that strengthens us for the pilgrim journey. But it doesn't stop there. Both the ministry of the word and that personal presence is meant to bleed out into our weeks as we walk the pilgrim path together. 
We are to get together and to use the word to encourage one another. When somebody plants a garden, they tend to it. They care for it. And this is how the Lord Jesus Christ is tending to us as one part of his garden each and every week without fail. Well, that is just the first way that Jesus strengthens the church. He strengthens the church uh, by way of encouragement. But second, he strengthens, strengthens the church also by shepherding. Notice what the text says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church. The Lord Jesus strengthens his church not only by way of encouragement, but he also provides for the shepherding that is needed in each and every local church. The text says that elders were appointed in every church because each and every church needs a plurality of elders for the sake of strengthening the church through that ministry that the church provides. So let's consider how Jesus provides the shepherds for his flock. First, the text tells us that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them. So what does that mean? Because at first glance, it may seem as if this means that Paul and Barnabas went like bishops and they just like picked out whomever they wanted and said, you guys are going to be the elders. We are appointing you now as elders. Well, this is one of the places where an understanding of the original languages is so very important because this word appointed literally means to approve by a show of hands. So yes, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. But how so? They did so by an approval done by the show of hands. This is what we read about back in Acts chapter 6 when they said, Choose from among you six, uh, seven men who will serve. This is what we read about in 2 Corinthians 8.19 where Titus is appointed in the church. What we are reading about here in Acts 14 is the Christ-appointed means for selecting the officers of the church. Here, Paul and Barnabas have been sent out by the church, right? The Holy Spirit sent Paul and Barnabas out back in Acts chapter 13. And they went out preaching the gospel. And now they're going back to these churches to appoint elders. And how are they doing so? Well, they're doing so by conducting elections. They are no doubt giving instruction from the word of God along the lines of Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. These are the biblical qualifications for elders. And then they are asking the congregation to consider, to prayerfully uh, recognize who among you, which men meet these qualifications. And then they appoint them by way of the showing of hands. They are conducting elder elections so that they are appointing elders. In this way, the elders were selected and set aside by the church by Christ through the means that he had appointed for the sake of each congregation. Notice that in each case, it is plural. Elders were appointed. And this is because in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. That's what the book of Proverbs says. Every congregation needs a plurality of elders, a group of men who meet the qualifications given to us in the word of God. They must be godly men who are then able together to shepherd the church. Now notice the language of the text. It says that the elders were appointed for them. The elders are appointed 
for the church. It's quite easy for us to misunderstand the role of the elders. But elders are appointed for the church. The the church is Christ's body and he deeply cares for it. The, the, The church is the bride of Christ and he bought her with his own blood. And so then he appoints elders to shepherd in each church for her, to care for her. Jesus wants the elders to lay down their lives in the imitation of Christ, to seek the strengthening and the encouragement of the church. This is what elders are for. So what does this mean for us today? Well, it means at least three things. On the whole, it means that we all, as a church, need to learn to see the ordering of the church, the government of the church, the elders provided in the church as Christ's care for us. We need to see the fact that we have a plurality of elders here as a good gift given to us by Jesus. You see, we don't have elders just because we think it makes sense. We don't have elders just because we see uh, advisory boards in a company in the world. No, we're not imitating the world in any way. We are doing what Christ has commanded. And we need to look at the elders that Christ has given to us as good gifts given to us by Christ because he cares for us. Second, this applies to you men. In 1 Timothy 3, where Paul provides the qualifications for elders, he begins by saying, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, he desires a good thing. So men, it may be that Jesus Christ wants you at some point in your life to serve in this capacity. Jesus may want you to serve as a shepherd and to help the elders care for his flock. And so seeing this in the word of God, seeing that this is how Christ strengthens the church, I want you men to prayerfully consider serving in this way if it be the Lord's will. Set this before the Lord in prayer. Seek to be equipped by Christ for this service. Study passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and seek these things in you by Christ, from Christ, and then begin to develop and to hone the skills that God has given you by using them now to encourage and to strengthen others. Oftentimes when we have an elder election, all we are simply doing is recognizing that Christ has raised up one who is an elder among us. And he simply needs to be set apart officially to the task that Christ has called him to. So men, make this something you aspire to. Set it before the Lord, saying, Thy will be done. Third, this is for the elders. Let us shepherd the church of Jesus Christ in a way that reflects him. Let us be true servants of Christ. Let us conscientiously remember that these are his people. This is his body. 
This is his bride. He has purchased these people with his own blood. And let us use the model that Paul here provides for our imitation. Let us see how he lays down his life for the church. He aims to encourage and to strengthen with the word of God publicly and privately and with his personal presence in their lives. And then he keeps before the saints the present and future realities that strengthen the church for perseverance. Brothers, let us be formed by the word of God and imitate the models given to us in the word. And let us shepherd the flock of God in a way that helps our congregation see the care of Jesus Christ. So the, uh, Jesus strengthens the church first by encouragement, second by shepherding. Finally, let's see that Jesus strengthens the church by dependence. By dependence. This is important. And this counterbalances everything that we have considered so far. We have considered the weighty responsibility of strengthening this church, strengthening the church. And this is a task that is so weighty that we might rightly wonder if anyone could ever bear up under it. Who, after all, is sufficient for these things? The Apostle Paul asks that question because the answer is Jesus. And that is why this final way is so essential to the life and the ministry of the church. This is essential for elders, and this is essential for each and every member of the church as well. You see, if we go about the work that Christ has called us to in his church as if it depends upon us, well, we will in the end be crushed under a weight we were never intended to bear. And that is why Jesus here strengthens his church, not only through encouragement and shepherding, but by this model of dependence. Our passage ends saying, With prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. There is dependence for you in three ways. First of all, we have dependent words. Dependent words. That's what prayer is. Prayer is saying, Lord, I am entirely dependent upon you. Paul and Barnabas here give themselves to praying for the church. In Colossians 2, Paul writes about how he is burdened with his struggle for the church. And in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes about the daily burden that he bears because of all of the churches or for all of the churches. You see, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will also love his church. And if you love his church, you will be burdened by and burdened for the church. And so this creates a reciprocal relationship that we see here in the word of God. Loving Christ and loving his church creates a reciprocal relationship. It burdens us for the sake of the church. But what do we do with that burden? Well, we bring it right back to the Lord with dependent words. We bring it right back to the Lord in prayer. Because here Paul and Barnabas, carrying that burden, unburdened themselves by going to God in prayer. This is a, a God-given burden that drives us to our knees in dependent prayer for the church. And so second, we have here dependent actions. We have seen through the book of Acts, oftentimes prayer is accompanied with fasting. That's what fasting is. It is dependent actions that accompany dependent words. Oftentimes, fasting is simply setting aside 
our physical dependence upon food so that we might heighten our own dependence upon the Lord, so that we might set aside time to communicate and acknowledge our utter dependence upon the Lord. It is the actions, fasting are the actions that Christ has provided so that we might say not just in word, but also indeed that, Lord, we are entirely dependent upon you. In the book of Nehemiah, he is stricken with grief over the condition of Jerusalem. The gates are broken down. The walls are broken down. His first response is sadness over the state of the church and over all of the challenges that lie ahead. So what does he do? Well, he proceeds with prayer and fasting. He goes to God with fasting and prayer, seeking that the Lord rebuild his church. And that is what we've seen in the book of Acts as well. Fasting and prayer often go hand in hand, and they were a regular part of the life of the church. And it is because of this that I've asked our elders to consider and to think about how we can lead the congregation, not just in prayer, but prayer with fasting. That we might join our dependent words with dependent actions and seek the blessing of Jesus Christ upon our church. Which is why we have third here, dependent devotion. With fasting and prayer, they committed the churches to the Lord in whom they had believed. Here we have witnessed the ways in which Paul and Barnabas have labored and sacrificed for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. We have seen the ways in which they laid down their own lives for the sake of the church, but then here we see that they do so by committing the church right back to Christ. While they are obviously burdened for the sake of the church, and while they labor with all of the various anxieties that Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 11, they were also intentional and mindful that they themselves are not the good shepherd. And so they actively commit the church back to Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd. And this is essential Not only for the elders, but for everyone who loves Christ and his church. This is what allows us to labor out of love for Christ and for his church from a place of rest. From a place of rest instead of from a place of anxious toil. Let's go back to the analogy of a garden. When you plant a garden... There are obvious things you must do. You prepare the soil, you plant the seeds, you provide water, and you provide sunshine, and uh, you protect the plants from predators. But then when all is said and done, when you've done what you can do, what do you do? You must wait upon the Lord who gives the growth. You must recognize, I'm powerless to do anything in this garden beyond what God has called me to do, I'm reliant upon him now to give the growth. Well, that's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They have done what God has called them to do. And now they are actively resting and waiting upon the Lord to give the growth. This is how Christ strengthens the church for the work that he has called us to. We serve Christ in the church, each of us, according to the gifts and calls that Christ has given us. But then we depend upon him. We depend upon him regularly through fasting and prayer, knowing that he gives the growth. Again, this is essential to life in the church. 
And this is what allows us to bear that burden that we have for the church without being broken by it. This is what allows us to labor from a state of rest. We do what we can. We love and we pour ourselves out for the church, out of love for Christ. But we don't bear a burden that we are not strong enough for. The Lord Jesus is the one who is caring for his church. So let us set aside any sort of anxious toil and instead serve the Lord Jesus from a place of peaceful rest. Well, here we have considered how the Lord Jesus strengthens his church. And we have considered how Jesus, the good shepherd, tends to his flock. He does so by encouragement, by elders, and by dependence. He does so through the personal presence of believers. He does so by the ministry of his word, both publicly and privately. He does so through the elders, the shepherds that he has given. He does so by dependence, fasting, and prayer, our committing of the church back to Christ. And so I want to close by just briefly considering the question, how do we benefit from these things? Because this is the ministry of Christ. We have seen what Christ does, the Lord Jesus does, to strengthen his church. How then can we be strengthened? Well, I ask the question to simply highlight one thing. We need to attend to these things as we see them in the word of God by faith. And there's a helpful analogy for us in the Word of God. We know that if we are going to benefit from the sacraments, we need to attend to them by faith. Right? You can't simply come to the Lord's Supper and partake of it mindlessly without faith, without understanding what's going on, and just automatically assume that you are going to benefit from it. No, you must attend to it by faith. Well, the same thing is true for all of these means that Christ has provided. We need to look here and see, yes, this is what Christ has given to us. This is Jesus' care for us. And then we attend to these things by faith. And as we do so, the Lord Jesus will strengthen us. The Lord Jesus will strengthen our souls. He will encourage us in the faith. And he will bring us through those many tribulations and into his kingdom. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, we ask that you would give us this faith. You have told us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And we've seen here in your word that it is the ministry of the word that strengthens faith. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that you will use the means that you have given to strengthen us as your people. Lord, help us to encourage one another. We heard in the book of Hebrews that we are called to uh, exhort one another daily. And so we ask that you would give us wisdom to know how to carry out your call in our lives. You have given to us the weekly worship to gather together personally and to worship to hear the word of God again, and we ask that you would strengthen us in this way and cause us to carry it out through the week. Lord, may we use the shepherding that you have given to us in the church. May we recognize it as your care for us. Let us pray for our elders and give thanks for your 
shepherding care. And Lord, we pray that we might always be a prayerful people, that we might attend to these prayers, joining fasting to them, because we are utterly dependent upon you. And so, Lord, we ask as we see these things in your word that you would strengthen us as your people, that you would cause us to continue in the faith, that you would bring us powerfully through all of these tribulations and into your eternal kingdom. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word and for your care. We pray this now in your name. Amen. Let's sing to the good shepherd. Let's sing of the Lord Jesus Christ.